Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, OnScript listeners. I'm Matt Lynch, a co-host of OnScript, along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. Welcome back. I first want to thank all of you who give to us so faithfully, uh, and we really appreciate you and your contributions to helping OnScript sustain itself and even grow. So thank you for that. For this episode, we have a mystery guest, so you'll have to wait and see who that is. Um, But before we get on to the episode, could I remind those of you who haven't yet, please, if you see a vehicle with lots of dirt and grime on it, we're really getting into winter here, so... There's going to be lots of that wintry dirt, dust, and road chemical buildup on vehicles. If you see a dirty vehicle, don't let the opportunity to help us out pass you by. Could you just uh, please write onscript.study on its back or side and then put five little stars under it? We'd appreciate that, and so will many others. It's free and easy, so what's stopping you? All right, enjoy the episode. Welcome, OnScript superfans. Today we have a secret guest who you might recognize his voice as soon as he begins to talk. You might have heard him in podcasts such as OnScript and other podcasts such as the intros to OnScript. Welcome today, Dr. Matthew Lynch. Hey, Drew. Thanks for having me. Uh do you go by Matthew or Matt? I've never asked. Uh, I, I go by Matt, uh, except in when I sign my books, I sign I sign, sign as Matthew. <laughs> what? Like, like for instance, when I'm signing a copy of my revised dissertation that I'm giving to my parents. Ah, uh, do you put notes to fans when you sign your books? Like, uh, and I will I, always I, I love you. I forget. I just do it spontaneously and. Whatever comes to me in the moment. If I think the person needs a, a note, I give them a note. Yeah, like like a note, like a like a a note on yeah, life. Uh, uh, yeah, like you need, encouragement you need to dress or life better. advice. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You really shouldn't go up to strangers and ask for autographs. Love you, <laughs> Matt L. Lynch. Or no, Matt. What's your middle name? Yeah, Jeremy. Jeremy, you're, you're close. Yep. Okay, J J L. All right. Um, well, I think the question that everybody wants to know is, how did you, Matthew Jeremy Lynch, get into biblical studies in the first place? And by the way, is this going to be like a between the ferns kind of interview, or is this uh, going to be friendly? It, this this can be friendly. Okay, we promise usually a friendly interview yeah. to our interviewees. Oh, oh, so. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Wh- whatever you think is appropriate. Okay. Um, I might so, have to get hostile later, so just be <laughs> I'm ready. Um, and expectant. So I got into, well, I, I grew up in a Christian home and where the Bible was was very important and part of our family routine. And, and in fact, we lived with my grandparents and they, I, I have vivid images of, you know, when I would go to school in the morning, I would see them through the window reading their Bible every day. They read through the whole Bible every year. And so they were married for 65 years, I think. Um and I think they read through the Bible every year. So, so they had, that was just a, and my grandmother taught Bible at church and my mom taught Bible. My dad taught at Sunday school. So it was just part of our family world. Um, in a pretty, when I think back on it in a pretty intense way, although it never felt oppressive. And, and my grandparents had this, uh, Bible reading challenge when we turned 12, and they did this with all their grandkids, where if we read through the Bible in a year and gave them reports, then we got $100. So, Whoa. Yeah. Which, you know, when I was 12. That's a great incentive. Yeah. And, and my, my parents now do that with their with their grandkids. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I read through the Bible. Were there smaller perverse incentives, like $5 for every earnest prayer you give? Uh, no, <laughs> they didn't, and they didn't chunk out parts of the Bible. So, like, if you read the Torah this much, but right. it, it was, uh, yeah. And so, I had to give little reports on what I was learning and reading along the way. So, so anyway, that you know, I grew up with that. But it, my relationship with the Bible is primarily devotional, life lessons type stuff, and I don't fault that. But I, 
it, it was probably not enough to sustain my interest in it. And it took other things to, to do that. So I, um, although this isn't directly related to the Bible, I had uh, a teacher at church who, so I grew up in like the Sunday school world. And, um, and he, he introduced me to writers like George MacDonald and C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton and, and this whole idea of thinking Christianity that excited me a lot. And we would go to his, a few of us would go to his house and just talk about different books we were reading. And he was a wealth of knowledge and insight. So, so I had, I, if I look back, like there are people along the way that at key moments kind of took me to the next level. And, and then during my undergrad years, I went to Israel. Uh, this is back in 99. And, um, and I took a, when I went, I was just kind of going to do something different because I didn't really want to stick around in Philadelphia. And so I went to uh, Jerusalem University College and I took a, a, a number of classes there. One of the most significant though was intertestamental literature where we read large chunks of, of Charles Worth's uh, Old Testament pseudepigrapha and, and some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and that that kind of opened my eyes to the world of, of kind of inner biblical interpretation. So even though this is intertestamental, but just the same way that early Jewish writers read the Old Testament, the New Testament writers were reading the Old Testament in similar ways. And that led me to people like Michael Fishbane and James Kugel and other people who, it, it, I realized there were all these exciting authors and scholars out there that, could open up totally new world. So I went back to my undergrad then, switched majors to biblical studies, and then from there went on to Regent College where I did my master's and then to Emory for a PhD. And so I think, yeah, there, there are a number of other kind of touch points along the way. But those yeah, are some can I ask you about that, yeah. the, the stepping stones there? Because you just went like, oh, I just went to Regent College and then when, as we do, right? And then there's people who are thinking about going to a seminary or like a college like Regent or thinking about, should I go on and do a PhD? Um, and so I wonder what you, like, what compelled you? Because I think some people get compelled because they're, they're smart and they just feel like they should because this is the path they're on. I often think that's not necessarily the reasons to go into PhD studies. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it was wasn't because I was smart. I I had to work hard for what I did, and uh, it was just a love for the the subject matter and wanting to to go deeper and know more and and to connect with the kinds of people that I kept connecting with in the world of biblical studies. And um, there was a church component, too, where I, as I went deeper, you know, I kind of ended up steering toward the Old Testament, um, although not exclusively. But as I did that, I began to um, see that the church was pretty anemic when it came to reading the Old Testament, knowing what to do with it. It was either, again, like a, a bunch of life lessons for us or a foil for what we now do don't have to bother with because we're under grace and not under law. So that, that those were like the dominant paradigms for reading the Old Testament. And I began to, you know, I, I saw that the Old Testament has so much more to offer that we just weren't tapping into in the church. And so I've, I've maintained that all along the way, that interest in thinking about the Old Testament and its importance in the church. So. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, desperately needed. And I, I think we, um, I think we all know. I, in fact, I was just teaching Sunday school this last week and uh, just going through Abram's life and kind of the things he did with his wives and his lady folk. <laughs> and, you know, there's some teenagers in there. You could see, like, this is the first time they'd ever maybe even heard of it or thought through what's going on. And then the question was, well, why? Why are these stories in there, right? Um, I think, oh, well, actually, I think there's really good reasons for these stories to be in there. Um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, I'm I'm always amazed, even in um, not as much seminary because I went to a seminary that focused on training pastors, um, but in the PhD world, how many people can end up there who belong to a church but have no real interest in connecting their work to the yeah. church? Yeah, um, uh, it, it mystifies me as well. I mean, I I understand if you're just coming at it from a secular perspective and you, you are interested in this as an ancient text, but to be in the church and not have a feel that burden for bringing the goods of 
academic study to the church. Um, yeah, I find that mystifying. Okay, good. I'm not alone. <laughs> um, so then uh, you graduated, and you probably were rolling in several multiple offers uh, for. Oh, let me tell um, you right now. For professors, yeah. yeah. So you and how did you? choose which one of those offers to take. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, By the way, this is a question that our, when we have visiting students here, yeah. they have faculty panels, and one of the questions of the faculty panels is, how did you decide to come to work at King's? Ah, yeah, <laughs> which, that's pretty... Which is, is funny to us, yeah. Yeah, it, so I was fortunate during my PhD studies to... I spent, uh, my wife and I, our family spent time in Israel for uh, five months, and then we went to Germany. And, and that's, I guess, another part of my academic journey is, is I've really appreciated having been exposed to North American, British, German, and Israeli scholarship. Not that I'm equally proficient in them, but uh, I think it's nice to have the lay of the land in those different places. Um, so, you know, I just realized you and I had, okay, so I had Phil Long for a Hebrew professor. Yes. Who left Covenant Seminary. Yeah. My, left my class teaching it over yeah. the summer, and then yeah. we figured out a couple of weeks yep. later was teaching you Hebrew. That's right, at Regent, right? Yep. It I just now realized also my supervisor, or one of my supervisors in PhD studies, Nathan McDonald, uh-huh. left St. Andrews yep. to go to Germany, where, yep, where he I had was. you as yep. a postdoc. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we it, are multiply connected. I just yeah. Realized. So all these professors were shaped by interactions with you, and then. <laughs> You know, I in turn was. They came uh, cursing and spitting into yeah, your world. Yeah, and, they, yeah, they came scarred to me. Yeah, and right. <laughs> You helped uh, them out. So I was in Germany, and uh, a friend of mine, Rob Barrett, he was. He had taught at WTC like a couple years prior to him going to Germany. And he was supposed to teach an MA class, um, but for various reasons, couldn't do it. And so last minute, kind of asked me if I would fill in for him. And of course, during your doctoral program, you need teaching experience. That's a big thing. And um, although Emory gave that, like, it's nice to get some outside your own institution. So I jumped at the at the offer, didn't even care if it paid. But um, And so I taught this MA Introduction to the Old Testament module at WTC, where I now work. And then the next year, after working with them part-time, they had an opening for full-time Posts in Old Testament, and they needed a dean of studies. So I kind of came in and straight out of PhD program, jumped in to teaching Old Testament and and dean administration. Of yeah, <laughs> um, but it's it, a natural fit. Yeah, but it was an exciting time because WTC had had just turned a corner and you know come out of a really difficult time. Well, I was still in it in many ways, but there was just all this opportunity for growing and developing and. Um, shaping an institution. And that, that's been exciting. Uh, so I've been here for, this is my seventh year now. Um, and yeah, so I, so I really enjoyed my time at WTC. And, and, I, and I think like you, you, you move from PhD programs to, to jump to a, a seminary context, even though this isn't a seminary, it's a, a, a theological college. Uh, there's all these different skills you have to develop. And so I had to become a better communicator. I had to become a better teacher that was able to distill things for all levels of of uh, students and relating better with the church, communicating with the church, the benefit of theological study. So it, you know, in many ways, it's been really great being here. Yeah. And even if you remain in a research institution, those skills are probably... I mean, yeah, honestly, yeah. the professors that have those skills are the ones that everybody wants to take yeah. their classes, study with them. So absolutely, yeah, yeah, and and um, yeah. So so I think back to your question of like, how did I choose WTC? It was my only option. Um, I had like there was one other offer for like a one or two year post, which you know I didn't we didn't really want to move and be somewhere for two years and then not know what's next. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's how I ended up here. Um, and so you are, you've taken a job at Regent College in Vancouver, your alma mater, mm-hmm. and you're heading back in the summer, I assume? Yeah, so we'll move up there in August. Is, well, my job starts in August. I'll move up there a week before. Okay. 
And so what's the biggest change you're anticipating there? I mean, outside of living back in North America, um, yeah. what's it, just institutionally, what's the biggest change for you there? Um, well, I, I think for me, I'm, I'm excited to be primarily based in the classroom. Um, so I have a, a to a large extent, a uh, pretty heavy admin role here. And, and I, I do love aspects of that, but I am excited to be focused on the classroom. Um, so that, that'll be a major shift and also a place where I'm surrounded by colleagues on a regular basis. So we're a, we're a decentralized college here at WTC. Uh, it's part of our strength is that we're, you know, we're able to be flexible and lightweight. Um, but I do love the daily interaction with students too. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, and then in terms of the, the Regent is just a graduate school, so I won't be teaching undergrad. Um, and and Regent also has, a, I think, a pretty distinctive emphasis on theology and the arts and integration. Um, in fact, when I went back to interview, I was struck again by how many students are bringing disciplines together that don't ordinarily go together, poetry and the Bible and science and the Bible, you know, like it's very integrative. And, and so I, I love that environment. And yeah, so I think I'll, I'll learn a lot as well. And, and, and to work with Ian Proven too, I'm obviously a huge fan of him. If you've listened to past episodes and, uh, I, to the opportunity to work with him is, is very yeah. exciting. On that note, you, I think you and I differ in this one aspect is, uh, I'm afraid of big, complicated books. Um, they terrify me quite honestly. <laughs> I will often look the size of a book and think just like, it's just not realistic. I'm just not going to do that. Uh, and I've noticed that you are not afraid at all of big, thorny books. So what, what do you think that what that's rooted in? Oh, may, maybe it's uh, I am intimidated. And then by forcing myself to, let's say, are you, are you thinking back to Ian's reformation? I am totally thinking. Scripture? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, the one that you invited me to co-interview and did yeah. not tell me at all about the length you, of the book. You got, it, yeah. you got it in the mail and it was over 600 pages. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think... Um, I don't know. Like, uh, I think if it's an author that I'm excited to read, I, I want things to keep going. And I don't, you know, it's like a good novel. You don't want it to stop. So it, not that I, I don't ever skim and, and sometimes think, okay, you know, I'm just going to flip to the end of this chapter, get the summary and move on. But, um, and, and it's probably also a discipline by, by asking someone to interview, I'm, I'm forcing myself to read something that I might not read cover to cover otherwise. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do that the same as well. I still yeah. try to stay within the three hundred page, yeah, uh, range. But that book was uh, very enjoyable. Yeah, uh, yeah, front to back. So I, yeah, I kind of need to read it again. It was it was very good. Um, okay, so I think a lot of people are interested. We we have a unusually big fan base. Um, I'm 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 honestly shocked at how popular this podcast is. <laughs> Maybe since we've gotten like Amy Brown Hughes and Aaron Heim and Chris Tilling on, uh, it makes sense. But you know, and and you and Matt do a really good job. But uh, it's it's creepy how um, popular. I mean, I just look I, at the cre- numbers. I think creepy is the right word. Yeah, it's it's creepy. You think what's going on here? I was in Aberdeen. I don't. I was in the UK last week or a week and a half ago. And I won't mention any names here. But after I gave a talk there, this is in a New Testament seminar. Um, a person did come up and ask to take a picture with me oh, wow. because of OnScript. Yeah. I, I, I've not gotten that yet. And, and I and I said, okay, but we're just all going to acknowledge that this is weird, right? <laughs> 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 I'll do it. But as long as we all say out loud, this yeah. is weird. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, how did OnScript get started? I actually don't know. I have no idea how you guys started this thing, like what the conversation was like, because um, it, it, it did require some strategery and effort. Yeah. Um, well... I, I've been an avid podcast listener for a while, so that predates OnScript. And in my role at WTC, I had done some things with Google Hangouts, like recording videos with guests and doing interviews. And um, I enjoyed that, but it was, it was actually another layer of complexity to have the video recording and making sure that's all going well. So I... Uh, in listening to podcasts, I, I felt like there's a real gap in in the field of biblical studies and the kind of thing I'd want to listen to. 
uh, there were a couple of theology podcasts out there, but they were either, um, I don't know, for lack of a better term, like really reformed or, uh, I don't know, maybe on the really liberal end of the spectrum and not, nothing that I really felt really at home in. And so I talked to Matt Bates then, who I had I went to Regent College with, so I've known him since 2001. And I said, Matt, would you be up for doing a podcast together where we interview people and that around biblical studies and try to make it put things in a way that people can access but isn't totally bottom shelf? So now, now hold on, yeah. let's stop at this point. I'm going to assume, knowing you, uh, you know, just uh, for a few years now, that you probably at that point knew a lot of scholars. Uh, you had lots of people you could have tapped. Why Matt Bates? I, that's not a question well, I, of that's I, not a moral I asked judgment about 15 Matt or 20 other Matt. people. And, and then I was like, okay, <laughs> I got to make this phone call. Um, and then I, I just phoned him up. No, I, I think, <clears throat> well, Matt and I have been friends for a long time, and he's New Testament, and I am in Old Testament. So it, it made a lot of sense to team up. And, I, you know, I wanted a podcast that, was had a kind of um evangelical flavor to it in the sense of like the the perspective from which people were coming but is a is an engaged and open evangelicalism not not a circle the wagons type so and 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 i think it's fair to say that matt bates like you is very both generous and curious yeah yeah. which is not true of all of our scholarly no no i i and I, I think, yeah, Matt, we're both learners and, and like to to read new things and think in new directions. So, and to read people we disagree with and engage them cordially. So, I think we wanted to also model a kind of um, a, a kind of conversation with people that we might disagree with that is generous toward them. So, so Matt was up for it, and then we we kicked it off. I guess it was in 2016, and. Um, yeah, it just slowly started growing, and we thought, okay, this is this is fun. People are connecting with it and engaging, and you know, we slowly got better microphones and improved the quality. Um, and then, should we should we play some early like first well, first episode? Yeah, well, you can right go back to the first episodes with uh, Munther Isaac yeah. um, at Bethlehem Bible College, and he, uh, which was really interesting. <clears throat> He's Palestinian and wrote a book, uh, a Palestinian biblical theology of the land. Hmm. Um, so, but he, he... So you started out hot. Yeah. You're, you're, you're diving straight in. Well, you know? yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's an important book and important topic. So, but, and then we realized that for this to be sustainable, we need more people involved. And we had interviewed you and thought, oh, Drew would be great. So then asked you. Yeah, and, I listened to that interview and I, I think, why, what, what thought process was going through there? Great. Okay, this guy can talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it... He's got opinions. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you were doing different work than Matt um, or me. And I think you, yeah, you, you're, you're a curious person as well and, and generous toward others. So I think... Um, we, we realized, yeah, we need to get more people involved to make it sustainable. Because I didn't want to start a podcast, have it, you know, put out an episode every week and then just fizzle out. So we, we've been really consistent. And I think that's one thing that has helped us maintain a listening audience is that we, we, don't, we don't have two months where we just don't put anything out. Uh, but neither do we put out two episodes a week and flood, flood your feed and then disappear. So I, I think that for me, consistency was huge. And then um, bringing on Aaron has been great and Chris. And then um, and then I had a, a real sense that it would be, it's important to, to have a podcast that integrates biblical studies and theology. And so that's, that prompted the decision to ask Amy if she wanted to join. And then she, we've started the theology stream. And I hope that grows. I'd, I'd love to see that grow more. Um, so I, yeah, it's a, I'm really thrilled with how, how it's gone and, and I'm not worn out from it. Yeah, it is, it is uh, what would be the right word? It is 
a task. I mean, I think most people know that it, it's it's a bit of work. It's it is something on top of what I do, uh, and I don't I don't even do that many. I do a few episodes a year, but uh, it uh, but it is a joy as well. And I think um, I think people can sense that we we enjoy having this conversation. And I and I've enjoyed Amy listening. I mean, that's a bunch of stuff that I would have never in my life read. And I've I've loved every single episode on the theology side. Um, okay, so uh, where the future of OnScript? Do you have any ideas? Well, I you got to lay off a few so, employees and then. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to lay off some. Um, maybe lay off Chris. Um, or yeah, I, you know that he's probably the top top pick right now because he's uh, just, british or is there any other reason uh yeah it's partly because he's british um and and also like i just think like he um you know he's got it coming um <laughs> <laughs> if anybody no. has it come. <laughs> no actually i'm thrilled to have um uh, the in terms of future directions i think i'd like to see the theology stream develop more i'd i'd really like to also develop a stream in archaeology, cultural backgrounds of the Bible, uh, cultural world of the Bible. I think a, a lot of people have interest in that anyway. Um, and someone who could communicate what's happening in those fields for a general audience. I don't know of anything doing that. Um, so, you know, we've had a few episodes with people who are in the field of archaeology, and, and that, those have been, um, I think, something a lot of people enjoy listening to. So, and in some ways, I'm just in doing all these things, following my own interests. So it's not driven by market needs per se, although that's maybe a, a spinoff benefit. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I feel the same as uh, the further. There's a couple of directions I see a lot of Old Testament scholars go, which is um, the and New Testament. Quite honestly, uh, is you always start out. Bible interest, whatever you're interested, in. and then eventually you have that political turn where you're like, what's what's the political structures going on here in the text? And then eventually, like I made the the finally the for reasons that weren't even up to me, but a, a book I was working on, uh, I made the material world turn where I was just like, okay, I need I really need to understand the ancient Near East, uh, the languages, and I didn't learn any of the languages, but I at least read a ton of ancient Near Eastern scholarship uh, and material world archaeology stuff. And um, I just feel so much more in touch with what's going on, both in the Hebrew Bible, but also the New Testament, because it, uh, it essentially was kind of historical archaeological analysis stuff that also then preps you for Roman, Greco-Roman world, Roman yeah. Empire stuff as well. So, Yeah, for me, it was, you know, going to, um, when I, I was at the Albright Institute for five months, and, which is an archaeological institute, I jumped in there not really knowing that world well. I'd taken one course in archaeology, but uh, but that just opened up all these new worlds to me. I absolutely loved it, and then did a dig afterward, and haven't I, I've maintained that interest. Yeah, and I think the importance of... I've been shocked, because I, I work for an institute where we can take people to Israel. Um, you can take scholars to Israel, um, and I've just been shocked how many senior Christian scholars, biblical guys, have never actually set foot in the land. Like, they have no mental topography. Um, and, uh, and I think, uh, this is like, you should do this at least once. You just need to walk the space, uh, get into the dirt a little bit. And it's, it's kind of life-changing on how you read scripture. Yeah. Uh, one of my professors in Israel said, once, once the rocks of Jerusalem get in your shoes, they're hard to get out. And, and that's been... Definitely been my experience. In fact, I'm going Friday uh, with a group from WTC. So really, yeah, yeah, for ten yeah. days. So I'll have a falafel for me. I will. Um, so you have been also working on. I heard you mention it a little bit uh, with the Q and A with Matt Bates, but you've been working on a, a book on violence for a while in uh, the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible specifically, right? Yep. Are you, what are you drinking there? Is that? It's just water. Oh, it's out of a pint glass. Yeah, that's what we have in our office. <laughs> You're ready. You guys are ready for ale anytime. Lager, yeah, lager. Yeah, let's in go. In case any other needs arise. Yeah. Yeah, that's all right. Oh, I thought it was vodka at first, so that's good. That would be a lot of vodka. I can't handle that much liquor. So. Yeah, I, I don't think anybody should be able to, honestly. Um, so the book on violence. Uh, I think I speak for everybody who follows Christian books, and when I ask you. Why on earth would we need another book on violence? I mean, hasn't hasn't John Walton nailed this one down? 
Uh, well, you can. I'll let our listeners decide that. They can go back to the episode we did with John Walton. Um, I uh, so I, I think what I'm doing in my book is asking different questions than most of the books that have flooded the market are asking. Not that it's wholly unique, but I think it's different enough that, um, again, like I, it, it was questions I had, and I, I wanted to read about it, and then didn't find anything. So. Um, so I'm asking more from a, you could say, a ground-up perspective. How does how do writers of the Hebrew Bible think about and conceptualize the problem of violence? What are the terms by which they they describe something as problematically violent? Mm-hmm. So, so can I stop I'm, you right there? Yep. Because because that move, like you're saying, this is unique, and I just want to highlight because uh, I you know I do this center for Hebraic thought thing. So it's just just to be clear, you're setting aside maybe what be the pressing contemporary questions when when we encounter the text, what really bothers us, and saying, well, maybe we should consider first what bothers the biblical authors. Like, where do they use their narratorial expertise to highlight problems of yeah. violence for us? Okay, yeah, exactly. I don't want to overrun that simple no, stuff no, that I think it, is so it, important. Yeah. It is worth highlighting because um, I, I think. There's often an assumption when thinking about, okay, when I'm going to talk about violence in the Old Testament, I must be working through the ethical dilemma of what I do with the destruction of the Amalekites or the Canaanites. Um, What do I do ethically with that issue? And I think that's a really important question, and I've written about that, and I think it's, it's a valid line of inquiry. However, I think the Hebrew Bible has its own set of critiques of violence that need to be heard as well. So I'm really trying to bring those to the surface and analyze them and ask, like, how did they, when they thought about the problem of violence, why was it a problem? How did they portray it? How did they, um, you know, frame it linguistically? And, and what can that then tell us about their way of wrestling with ethical problems that they had in their, in their time. So, um, and, and it's, I mean, it's, it's obvious when you start reading Genesis, for instance, that the problem of violence is put front and center with Cain and Abel. Um, but it's framed in a way that is somewhat different than from what we're used to maybe thinking about it. Um, I don't want to generalize cause there, there's certainly overlap. Uh, but you know, seeing that that violence has a direct relationship with the condition of the land, for instance, um, is a huge issue. Uh, so, so they thought about violence as an ecological problem, and uh, and and not just you know, in terms of you know, sometimes in war you cut down trees and salt fields and things like that. But there's some uh, intrinsic connection between what I do to someone else physically and the state of the earth. And um, so that's just one way that they're framing the problem of violence that could serve as a critique of us. So if, if we then turn the question around and say, how does, the, how does the Bible pose questions to us as moderns about violence, then I think it gets really interesting. Hmm. Yeah, that was, is that passage in, is it Numbers, where... You know, don't wield an axe against the tree for mm, it's, yeah, it's not a human. Yeah, yeah Deuteronomy. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's not yeah. a human that it's done anything to you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> lay off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's one of those things that makes you stop in the middle of reading these commands on invading places, and you're like, wait, 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 hold on, what, what's going on with the trees there? Yeah, that's. I mean, I'm very sympathetic to that. <laughs> on this recent project that I worked on, I, yeah. uh, I had similar tur- conclusions. Yeah, turning it all back to you, Drew, aren't you? Yes. Well, yes. <laughs> I'm just trying to sell books here. Um, so I wonder then, um, so you're going to do a bit of uh, helping them understand the conceptual world of violence. Uh, we say biblical authors, but obviously the Torah, um, the Hexateuch is going to use deal with violence in probably ways different than Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, right? Uh, yeah. To pe- it, people who are speaking, who have experienced certain hmm. types of violence, right? Yeah, I and... When I look at, so I have sort of four main sections to my book where I'm looking at violence as an ecological problem. I look at, at the sort of judicial nature of the problem of violence, uh, violence as a source of defilement. Um, 
and and violence as a problem of a sort of arrogance and you could say a moral problem. Um, and in each of those, I focus on a different body of literature, although there's there's some overlap across different genres and texts. So it's not all genre-specific or book-specific conceptions. Some of this stuff is just part of the way that it seems like a lot of ancient Israelites thought about the problem of violence. So it might show up in Isaiah and Genesis. So it, it doesn't always lead me down along the grain of a certain genre or section of the Hebrew Bible. And would you say just thumbnail sketch is uh, the conclusions you draw about the Hebraic sense of violence here then, is it in contradistinction to the ancient Near East in general, or does it seem to flow and critique at various points? Um, that's a good question. I, th I think there, there are points of continuity and perhaps some emphases that are inescapably Israelite in, in nature. Um, so, so I think like the, the link between physical violence against another person in creation is something that I think is, is a point of emphasis in the Old Testament. Um, not that it doesn't show up elsewhere, but it's a point of emphasis. Then you have other things, though, where, um, for instance, in the Psalms and Proverbs, there's a lot of talk about the way that violence is like the problem of violence is primarily the terror it causes by the sound it makes. And, and, and that's something like the idea of a tumult and, and that being an oppressive phenomenon is something you see across ancient literature. So that's not unique. So yeah, I guess there'd be points of continuity and discontinuity. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, I think the question that is probably people are screaming at their radios right now. Uh, as they're listening to this, yeah, they've tuned in, right? So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anytime you say tuned in, oh, yeah, it's, true. it's a radio metaphor. Um, <clears throat> is um, where does uh, Paul's uh, view, and and then you know, right behind Paul, you have Bart, right? Who's wh how do you how do you draw a line through Bart's heart into yeah. Paul, yeah, and, and then and, and to and deal with up. violence, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, hmm, I honestly have no clue um i haven't really thought in those terms before but i think we'd have to i'd have to ask like who would you chris, ask well well chris has done chris tilling actually he's done a lot on bart and romans are chris uh, tilling yeah 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 huh. well you let's you want to drag him in here yeah let's let's try to contact him okay well here let, hold on one second okay let's just bring him in i hope he's i hope he's barbecuing Yes. Now, Chris, you now realize your that your life consists of always being on call for an on-script episode. Chris, <laughs> we're recording right now, and um, yeah, we've got a question for you. Yep. Don't worry. There's no video. <laughs> Nobody can see you in the tub. Can't see me in my underpants. <laughs> oh man. Um, yeah, we do have a question for you. Yeah. It's a simple one. Uh, could you thread together a stream of thought beginning with Bart and working your way back through Paul about violence in the Hebrew Bible? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Bart, Paul, violence. Yeah. In the Hebrew Bible. Maybe just... Just sort of bring them together for us. So stream of consciousness. Do you always barbecue sausages in the tub? Is that... Yeah, that's that's exactly right, yeah. Do you like the, do you like the, the painted... Toenails. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, whose are they? They don't look like they're <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thanks for that. Um, uh, what do you mean? Uh, what, what, what's what's yeah, the concern well, here? Well, the, the question is like, so I'm, I'm writing a book on violence in the Old Testament, but I think in order to carry it forward into the contemporary world, you have to go through Paul and into Bart. And um, we just felt like you were the person for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. we were like, what schmuck would know about both Paul and Bart? <laughs> yeah, there aren't too many weirdos that juggle those balls. I um, I suppose one of the things that, that Bart offers all of this is 
that retrospective theological narration um, of language in the scriptures and even in Paul. Uh, what I mean is he, he wants the reality of God in Jesus Christ to condition our God talk. Our God talk can't be based on anything other than God's gracious movement towards us in Jesus Christ, or we're just making stuff up. You know, the, the, the basic decision tree we've got for someone like Bart is right at the very start. It's either we're going to do theology, which is that response to God's word in Jesus, um, or it is um, uh, speculation, uh, theoretical, <coughs> metaphysical speculation. And so when you're engaging someone like Paul as a Bartian, whatever that means, um, it means lots of different things to different people, but let me just keep it nebulous. Um, then you're going to look at two things in relation to the context of violence. You're going to have to have to deal with violence passages in Paul's letters. They are there. Um, you know, the, the understanding of um, what happens to those who, whatever we mean, don't recognize the body of Jesus in 1 Corinthians um, 11. Mm -hmm. uh, they eat and drink judgment on themselves. You know, what does this mean? Oh, there's the language, if it's Pauline, in Second Thessalonians of um, the exclusion from the presence of the Lord and um, the retributive judgment of God. You know, so Paul has uh, language which looks like it is um, violent, for want of a better word, towards the God's enemies. Mm -hmm. um, then, then it becomes, okay, then how do we think about this theologically? Back to the decision tree. Do we think about this as merely a textual exercise where we are stringing together a number of Bible verses? And well, when we do that, we're going to find that we're, we're going to deal with tensions and perhaps even contradictions because Paul seems to say something else about justice um, in his justification discourse. It isn't about retributive judgment. It's about this liberation that God has enacted because God is postured towards us in love. Um, so how do we how do we put all the pieces together? You know, and that's mm -hmm. where Bart's decision tree comes in, and we'll say, well, okay, in light of the way God has manifested Himself to His enemies in Jesus Christ, you know, while we were still sinners, mm -hmm. Christ died for us. You know, and that's the demonstration of God's love. Romans five eight. A uh, bit of a loose translation that one, but you get the gist. Uh, <laughs> That means then that our understanding of the theological weight of the violence texts is reframed and given a different dogmatic location, um, uh, which doesn't mean then we dismiss it all and, and hope for the best. You know, God's really nice after all, uh, but rather the weight it has in articulating the gospel and dogmatics um, is... Um, alternatively framed and this is important because some will what some will take those violence passages in paul and say this is the problem the the solution is faith in jesus so it becomes central to the gospel but abartium will say nope jesus is central and and then it's given a slightly different place mm. in thinking about paul did i weave that roughly correctly together is that sort of what you're looking for we're gonna give you silence as a response. <laughs> the stunned, angry like, silence. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, I'm learning about the power of silence. So, thank you. That is enough, Chris. That was uh, fantastic. You've given us a lot to think about there, and we'll let you get yeah. back to your bath. <laughs> Hang on, I'm gonna get my other foot out now. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hope, hopefully, you don't drop your phone in. See you, Chris. See you, All right. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. I love it that Chris is now available 24-7 yeah. for us. That is fantastic. He, he sees the phone ring, and it's like, ah, it's the OnScript guys. Got to go, honey. Sorry. Are you ready uh, for your first speed round? Uh, yes, I am. Actually, I, can see, I, I can see why people sort of groan and then proceed <laughs> with these. I have handcrafted a speed round for you from... It's essentially a collection of all your speed round questions oh, no. th that I despise mm. uh, turned back on you. So okay. are you ready? I'm ready. Yeah. Okay. Brief as you can be. How do you solve a problem like Maria? 
Um, I, you know, I, I like someone answered this and just said, you can't. You can't try to solve her. You just have to let her be. I like that. I could ask you to sing that. Okay. What's the best TV series streaming right now? Oh, I have no clue. I'm oh, so, how about ever? I, I, oh. I, mean, I did, you know, I liked the X-Files back back in the day, but I, if I went back to that now, I would just be like, oh, man. Yeah, um, I, you know, I don't so, know how so, they held time. Yeah, I don't think they have. Um, I, the, uh, let's just go with that. X-Files, okay. Uh, a penguin in a poncho walks into your office. He lifts his fin and he points. What does he point at? <laughs> he, put, he points at my bookshelf, actually. He, he uh -huh. walks into my office, you said? Yeah, into your office. Um, he, he, he points at a, at a book on the bookshelf, and um, the book is The Meaning of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Oh. And, um, That's unexpectedly it, it, boring. Well, it, it, well, it's ironic, too, because right. penguins like cold climates, and you know, Qumran's down by the hottest, true. one of the hottest places on Earth. So I think it was the... the, it was the curiosity of like i've heard about oh. it but i can't ever go there yeah it's the lowest hottest place the best gimmick going in in uh you know the dead sea is all the little shops down there where the signs say uh lowest prices on earth you know yeah uh would you be willing to sing a song right now in your head silently uh, uh, yes in my head silently sure yes okay you have four seconds Okay. And what song did you sing? Um, you know, uh, Any Dream Will Do from uh, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Uh, no, I have not seen it. But I close my eyes. No, 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 no you're not allowed oh, to oh, sing it okay. out loud. Okay, it's in my head. Yeah. All right. <laughs> L uh, listeners okay. who know the song, please sing along. Yeah. Okay. Um, biblical theology, good, bad, ugly, or unavoidable? Uh Good. Okay. Qual a qualified good there? Yeah. Like. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I um, benefited. Yeah. I think we just, uh, like anything else, you just want to say what you're doing when you're doing it. Yeah, right? exactly. How, yeah. how you're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's the most awkward experience you've had at the Society for Biblical Literature annual meeting? Uh, okay. So when I was a PhD candidate, no, before I even <clears throat> started a PhD program, someone said to me, what you have to do is you have to go to SBL and try to meet people from the prospective schools that you're going to go to. And so I thought, okay, I guess that's what you do. And so I went to these receptions that they have as a master's student, went up to people at different schools and said, hi, I'm Matt. I'm going to be applying to your PhD program and just wanted to say hi. And people, they all wanted to connect with their friends, colleagues, former students. And we're like, yeah, great. Okay. And then that was the end of the conversation. So it's just one awkward, it, it was the cumulative effect of 10 awkward conversations that took a toll on me. It took, took a couple of years to recover yeah. from. Is that where you got the nickname Matt Buzzkill Lynch? Mm -hmm. Yep. That's yeah. where it all started. Okay. <clears throat> so I just went over to the table and ate, you know, tons of food. <laughs> they do have good food. Yep. Uh, okay. Knock, knock. Who's there? Deja vu. Deja vu. Knock, knock. Who's there? Deja vu. Deja vu. <laughs> That's pretty All good. right. If you could pick anyone from the OnScript crew to interview you, who would it be? Uh, it would probably... Probably be you, Drew. Just like we're doing right now. Oh. Because of the knock so knock could... jokes. Oh. That tugs at the at my heartstrings. At your heartstrings? Yep. Um, do you count your steps? Uh no, but my son has wanted me to get into this like skipping every other stone thing that he's addicted to. Um but so it's not doesn't involve counting. That's a John Walton question. Mm -hmm. I remember that one. We asked him if he counted his steps walking across the, the campus. Right, which I thought was the most absurd question I'd ever heard. It turns out like he has a certain <laughs> yeah. behavioral 
pattern. Yes, that it turns out it does. That. Yep. Yeah, uh, that was like one of those Michael Scott. Chili's moments where I think you're an idiot and then all of a sudden I'm like or he's genius how did he know okay um, what embarrasses you most about yourself uh, oh, I guess I could just say what embarrasses you about yourself hmm. uh, I mean I don't like coming across as stupid so but that happens, and so I guess I guess that would be one thing. When, when has that happened? Oh, you know, different times. I, I don't have a distinct moment, but... I don't buy it. Well, I, when you're introducing yourself as a master's student at a casual reception right. where... yeah, it's stuff like that. People do, don't want to do business. Yeah. Well, I mean, there were moments where, you know, I'm, I'm like a year and a half into my doctoral dissertation. People are like, what are you writing on? And, I, and I'm just like, I, this, this, and this, but I don't know how it all fits together. You know, so it's just... Feeling like, oh man, I should, I should have a snappy answer for this. But I'm hmm. here. I have been at it for a year and a half and just can't articulate it. So no. it's it's moments yeah, but, like but that. But now you know that like lots of people, yeah, feel that way. Yeah, exactly. Even if they don't say it. Okay, if if you had a relationship status with God on your Facebook profile, would it be now? Get ready. There are there are officially eleven options for Facebook. <laughs> yeah, single. In a relationship, engaged, married, it's complicated. In an open relationship, Israel was there. Uh, widowed, separated, divorced, in a civil union, or in a domestic partnership. Huh. I think I'm trying to think like what the difference between in a relationship and in a domestic partnership was. So. Uh, I'm just going to go with the vague and nebulous in relationship. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right, good. It, it's complicated uh, at times. So there are seasons of intense complication, but I, I don't, that, that's not sort of my present experience. Uh, but no civil union. So you don't count covenants as civil unions. <laughs> I see. No, no that's yeah, cool. Yeah. I, I guess. <laughs> I guess married would be the right covenant answer. But that's it's not always my operative metaphor for thinking about me and God because I think that gets a bit too romantic and you know I mean it, it connotes for, different things for in a modern Western context. Ears. Yeah, in a yeah. modern context, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um what's the best single book in Isaiah studies in the last 50 years? Oh. Isaiah studies. It, it's funny. It's it's a book that suffers from lack of good commentaries, uh, and then you have the really detailed studies of Williamson. I, I I would guess probably just go with Brevard Child's commentary on Isaiah, even though I'm not really satisfied with that. Okay. Uh, what idea about biblical violence mm. do you wish would go the way of the dodo bird? Mm. I think that for a lot of contemporary studies, this idea that um, there's this radical discontinuity between the Old Testament view of violence and New Testament. So um, I think you, you often hear that it, it particularly, or here's here's maybe the, the, the instantiation of that that I, I particularly don't like, and that's that what you get in the Old Testament is what you would expect from tribalistic people. And, and I think that's so cultural, culturally pejorative and dismissive and really ignores all the nuance around porches of violence that you get in the Bible. Um, and then it also sets up this huge discontinuity between Old Testament and New Testament that feeds into other things too. So it, it, it does a lot of divisive, you know, it, it does, it forges this huge division between the Old and New Testaments that I think is really unproductive. Yeah, and it, it can fund soft Marcionism as oh, yeah, well. Yeah. So, yeah, I wonder, yeah, sorry, Yeah, you hear that term tribalistic or barbaric a lot in certain right. st strands of even evangelical treatments of the problem of violence in the in the Bible. 
And uh, it's not that the Israel didn't have a tribal structure, but when they say tribalistic, it, it usually connotes this view of the world where they just expected the gods to be violent all the time and they were simplistically violent themselves. And that's the lens through which they saw the world. And, and this gets back to my attempt to try to excavate indigenous conceptions of the problem of violence in the in the Old Testament that like they had their own critiques. And so some, some of which they would have for us as well. Yeah, I think this, so when you said that, what it, it did, it reminded me that that very first move, the indigenous critique or the emic critique within scripture, I think what you're fighting against is what some have called progressivist or evolutionist, not in the evolutionary theory sense, but that, that we're pro- everything is progressively getting less violent. So uh, I know when I talk to my classes about Joshua, I have to remind them that, you know, we, we firebombed Tokyo with napalm because Tokyo was made of paper and wood in the residence. Like we designed bombs and killed 100,000 people over three days yeah. with fire. Yeah, um, yeah, not just the, um, you know, atomic bombs, but... But the, yeah, the yeah. drop from B fifty twos at altitudes you, they could never, you know, yeah. shoot down. You so. could argue that um, that actually the the atomic bombs were somewhat more humane in some ways than the firebombing of Tokyo. Um, and you know we have drones over Waziristan right now that are killing men, women, and children legally. Like they have a legal decision to to do these things, knowing not as collateral damage, but saying no, we know those people are in the car, but we, we're deciding to kill them anyways. Um, so, yeah, I think there really is this cognitive dissonance that we've set up with violence, filled it in with a progressivist, like everything's getting better. We're not mm-hmm. violent like those mm-hmm. people were. And, and I, yeah. I don't think the evidence supports that, actually. And, and I think people who live in suburbia, um, suburban America, like you, you've got two senses in which you're removed from violence, violence in maybe uh, in environments that are more conflictual and also um, violence that happens overseas. You're just... You just distance from it. And I think that plays as well into uh, stereotypes about Old Testament sacrifice, which is also sometimes lumped into violence, like, oh my goodness, these people who who would slaughter animals. Could you imagine slaughtering animals? <laughs> as they eat their cheeseburger. Right, exactly. And, and, and I mean, these are animals they lived with and raised and were virtually part of their family. So they had an intimate connection with and an interest in giving them a good life. Uh, they were the happy dead, if anything, whereas our mass farming is, you know, we're just distanced from it. We don't see it. Yeah. Well, not to mention that, you know, most studies have shown that Israelites in the hill country are going to eat meat maybe just a few times a year. Yeah, it's a luxury. Right? These, these animals are worth more to them alive than uh, mm-hmm. as meat. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that that's the same same problem. You face. Yeah, in my ritual studies, this comes up a lot. But um, Back to Drew's It's amazing. Book. It's... A- <laughs> It is amazing how prevalent this yeah. is, and yeah. how you have how much work you have to do to sell people on the idea that no, no, you are part of the same violence trend as well. Um, and if you hadn't been habituated in certain cultures and cultural norms, and even then, we we outsource quite a bit of violence, right? Uh, we've moved it uh, into an automated realm, so you have people sitting in New Mexico in a box, dropping bombs over and the other side. Yeah, of the I was world. just listening to a um, a re- report on on the conditions in which people make our clothing. And in Bangladesh, there was that, that factory where uh, it collapsed and a thousand people died. And, you know, I mean, that's where our clothing, our cheap clothing is is funded by people living in, or working in horrendous conditions that are, are physically uh, harmful and not to mention ecological violence. So I, I think that there's so many senses in which we are... Uh, a very violent culture who has, as you said, outsourced it. Um, and then sometimes even our our efforts to look at the problem of violence in the Bibles can become ways of reminding ourselves that we're not violent. Yeah. Would you, just to end on this note, would you say that it's possible that the Hebrew Bible might actually have a more holistic and healthy critique of violence than we typically yeah. parse out today in, in American culture? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, but I do think that there are blind spots there. Um, so it's not, it's it's not like the they had a, a completely well-rounded in all respects view of the problem of violence. But in many ways, it was more holistic. 
that doesn't mean there aren't texts I still just puzzle over and don't really know what to do with. And I put in that pile of texts I don't know what to do with. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I would, I would agree with that. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Matthew Jedediah Lynch, thank you very much for being on OnScript today. Thank it's, you, Andrew. Uh, been... <laughs> it's been great to have you, and it's been great to get to know you over the years. Yeah, likewise. Thanks. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.